0: This Government Matters podcast is sponsored by Hughes Network Systems. It's time to expect more from your network.
1: Today on Government Matters, China could declare sovereignty over Taiwan by cutting off its imports and exports. We'll talk about the effect on global markets and options for a U.S. response. Then, Iran's pursuit of space launch technology could shorten the timeline to an intercontinental ballistic missile, since it uses similar technologies. We'll look at the implications for Tehran's nuclear program. And three years into the coronavirus pandemic, more than 78% of Americans have received at least one dose of a COVID-19 vaccine. Today, we're talking to one of the women who helped lead the rollout. Government Matters starts right now
0: from Washington, D.C. and around the world. This is
2: Government Matters with Mimi Gerges.
1: This is Government Matters, the only show delivering insights on federal government programs, people, and operations. I'm Mimi Gerges. There are several things China could do to pressure Taiwan short of full-scale invasion. One of them is to cut the island off in a sort of blockade. What that would look like and how the U.S. and allies could respond is the subject of a report by Bradley Martin. He's a director and senior policy researcher at RAND. Brad, welcome to the program. I'm
3: delighted to be here.
1: I use the term blockade, but China doesn't see it that way.
3: They don't see it as a blockade because a blockade implies that a nation is sovereign and that it's an act of war against a nation that is able to exercise sovereignty. China does not view Taiwan's government as being a sovereign, legitimate government, so it would call an action a quarantine instead of a blockade. And that's really the focus of our report.
1: So what would China try to accomplish by doing that?
3: By doing that, they would exercise sovereignty over the area around Taiwan. They would say, we are preventing the movement of things that we don't view as being uh, legitimate and they would be able to say to Taiwan, if you receive this, we're going to stop it, we're going to uh, inspect it, we're going to treat it as if it were something coming into Shanghai.
1: So really it's a power move. It's not so much that they're going to try to block, you know, the flow of people, food, they're not trying to do that.
3: Not, not in that stage of the uh, quarantine. As, as the quarantine were imposed, instead of it being something to try to deny food or energy or something like that, it would, as you say, be a power grab by, the People's Republic to say that Taiwan has no right to uh, exercise control over what comes and goes into the country.
1: So how easy is it would it be for China to do that?
3: China has a very large People's uh, Armed Forces Maritime Militia It has a Coast Guard and obviously has a very large Navy and conventional Air Force and that type of thing but they really wouldn't need that for this particular uh, uh, evolution. They would be able to do this readily It would obviously take them some time to organize and they'd have to impose some rules of engagement and that type of thing. But this is not something that would be difficult for a, a, a large nation like China to execute.
1: So then Brad, why haven't they done it already if it's so easy?
3: I suspect the major reason is that they're looking for ways to continue to pressure Taiwan. They would prefer to take the softest possible approach This would be the type of thing they might attempt if they felt like Taiwan was not serious about a reconciliation, it would be a case of them doing something, uh, it's a step above just normal peacetime pressure, but short of an all-out war. So
1: would a blockade quarantine of Taiwan be enough to trigger a U.S. response? And then what about other allies?
3: The U.S. would be constrained to answer China's actions. What this would involve is China imposing something that we've said we don't agree with. Some type of reaction would likely be necessary. This would best be accomplished if in the uh, company of allies. So it would be an international response how effective that response would be d- would depend on a lot of other things, like how well the United States exercised its, its diplomacy.
1: You don't like the idea of the U.S. enacting a counter-blockade of China. A Why counter- not?
3: A counter-blockade would be almost wholly ineffective. China is a very large, very well-connected uh, economy. For us to try to, to, to impose a blockade, a quarantine or whatever on China would be almost impossible. Certainly, if you look at how rapidly the pressure would build up on Taiwan, that would be a matter of weeks. Against China, it's a matter of years at best.
1: Well, let's talk about semiconductors. Yes. How big of a player is Taiwan in the semiconductor market, and what kind of impact would a quarantine of Taiwan have on the markets?
3: Taiwan is a massive participant in the world semiconductor industry. In fact, it produces uh, 90% of the most advanced chips, the things that are really going into the cutting-edge technology. So disruption of uh, Taiwan's export of of, of semiconductors would be a huge deal, or the products that go with semiconductors. It would be a real problem for the world economy. Uh, The consequences of having that cut off would be inability to to manufacture some really key components that we've come to rely on.
1: Which we're really feeling right now. So what do you recommend to lessen the vulnerability of the global supply chain?
3: There are several things that need to take place. One thing is that the United States and its allies, the rest of the world, need to be thinking about how we can find other sources of of semiconductor production. This is a long-term thing. This is not something that happens overnight. This is something that would involve... uh, a partnership with industry, partnership with, our, with other countries. It's, it's a type of thing that would have to take place uh, over a period of years. Nevertheless, if it's not done, then we're, we're in a position of very great vulnerability when it comes to Taiwan.
1: You also recommend forward-deploying U.S. forces, U.S. troops. Yeah. Give us some specifics on that.
3: The specifics there are that if a, something like a quarantine is imposed and the United States wants to react to it, if it, if it takes two or three weeks or a month for it to, to muster the force to at least present some sort of reaction, that's time that Taiwan is getting into steadily more dire straits. It, it's not necessary that the, the forces be used, but it is necessary they be there if they're going to be used. So for deployment, the, and specifically naval and air forces, the type of things that are, are already fairly heavily deployed in East Asia would be the type of thing I'm, I'm talking about.
1: Although that would be an escalatory move, wouldn't it?
3: It would be escalatory depending on how conveyed. It's, it's certainly, they're certainly there to communicate to, to China that it, that the United States will not uh, allow or will, will react to aggressive moves on their part but it is, at the same time, not directly provocative. It's not like we're saying we're going to attack China if you you do something, it is a measured response which is uh, of limited escalatory potential.
1: All right, well, Brad, I wanna thank you so much for coming in and talking to us about this.
3: Well, thank you very much. I appreciate the chance to discuss this with
1: you. Coming next, Iran advances its long-range ballistic missile program. What that means for the delivery of nuclear warheads. Satellite imagery shows that an Iranian rocket launch could be imminent. The purpose is to launch satellites into space, but that same long-range ballistic technology could also allow Tehran to launch longer-range weapons, including nuclear warheads. Behnam Ben-Talablu is a senior fellow at the Foundation for Defense of Democracies. Behnam, welcome to the program.
2: Pleasure. Thank you so much for having me.
1: So, spell out the military significance of Iran possibly launching this rocket.
2: Uh, So the Islamic Republic, in addition to having a robust nuclear program and missile program, also has a robust space program. And under those auspices, it has a satellite launch vehicle or a space launch vehicle capability. And these things are essentially carrier rockets uh, that try to put satellites into low-Earth orbit. This is one of the lowest tiers for commercial uh, space use. Uh, But at the same time, the regime actually has a parallel military. Uh, space program as well, where it puts not commercial or imaging, sa- uh, not commercial satellites, but military satellites into space. Either way, both of these different uh, satellite functions uh, matter more because of the rocket and the delivery technology. You have powerful thrust, you learn about phasing, and that basically allows you to boost your uh, missile systems, which currently are in the medium to at most intermediate range uh, category for the Islamic Republic, into longer or potentially even ICBM intercontinental ballistic missile ranges. Uh, So if reconfigured, they really could provide the Islamic Republic a real boost uh, for the uh, range of its known uh, missile program.
1: But at the same time, Iran has had several and successive failures of its rocket launchers. Do we know why they failed? And is there evidence that they're learning from their mistakes?
2: I think this evidence of learning is really key because most of the reported failures Uh, have happened uh, in the rockets that use uh, 1990s uh, North Korean-style engine, and those are liquid propellant systems, where many in the arms control community have not been as afraid of the potential military applications of those satellites, even though those potential military applications still exist. What the Islamic Republic has been creating, developing, and testing more so in the past two to two and a half years are solid propellant motors, which have a much more direct military application And the regime has had a comparably better, uh, if you believe the reporting and piece together what else exists in the open source, uh, track record with those. And that's what the regime seems to be wanting to step up here. And if they produce a phased or or an entirely all-solid propellant uh, satellite launch vehicle one day, it would basically be one of the biggest telltale signs that this regime is going for an ICBM.
1: Because of that solid fuel as opposed to the liquid fuel. Solid fuel... uh being used more for weapons instead of just for space purposes, space launch.
2: And it is absolutely possible to still use, you know, liquid propellants, you know, all of the regime's medium range ballistic missiles uh, use liquid propellants, uh, but old, and the regime has been trying to change that to keep uh, systems that are more militarily, uh, you know, you know, storable, movable, you know, you can uh, have solid fuel systems fueled and ready to go. They have less of a signature they're less susceptible to these left-of-launch interdiction types of operations. So they're just greater military utility, and they're also more mobile. Uh, but broadly, you know, all the countries that do have these very long, uh, long-range strike capabilities, like ICBMs, they tend to prefer solid propellants. So this really would be a huge telltale sign.
1: And Behnam, is this all indigenous development in Iran, or, or are they getting outside help?
2: well even as the regime does love to tout that its you know missile program is all indigenous what you see in terms of procurement patterns of technologies uh, the regime remains active in trying to illicitly procure things from you know jurisdictions of weak central authority in europe and asia but we cannot deny that there has been a real shift in terms of the domestic uh, motor production capabilities you know earlier this year the regime produced a large a solid propellant motor, which may be used perhaps not in this upcoming uh, rocket test, but in in future ones. So there is a significant growth industry here. And that's something that U.S. sanctions, international sanctions should really be trying to prevent the foreign and domestic supply chain uh, for these technologies.
1: Beyond the military and technical goals, what political benefit is Tehran looking for from these tests?
2: So ultimately, whether it's the nuclear program, the missile program, or even the space program, the regime uh, you know, has two big forces driving these things, status and security. Security because of the weapons options and the deterrence and the punishment options, but status because the regime is trying to say how advanced some of these programs have been able to uh, really be in the face of international or in the face of Western sanctions. And ultimately, much of the Islamic Republic's revolutionary ethos does talk about self-sufficiency, so they are trying to check that box as well. But in the short to medium term, when you have more of these successive kinds of launches, it becomes a political signaling mechanism that they cannot be deterred from an outside force. And so it's no surprise that you do have ultra-hardliners at the helm in, in Iran now who do want to specifically speed up Uh, these base launch vehicle technologies.
1: You know, Israel has been threatened directly by Iran and they've allegedly attacked Iran's nuclear facilities, nuclear scientists in the past. What has Israel's reaction been to this latest news?
2: Uh, As far as I've uh, seen or heard, the Israelis haven't publicly commented on this. But what the Israelis have been doing every time there is not just the, you know, ballistic missile uh, that is test launched uh, by the Islamic Republic. But every time that there is also a space or a satellite launch vehicle, every six months there is a reporting mechanism at the United Nations, particularly the the resolution that codifies the Iran nuclear deal, where uh, these things can be reported and can be cataloged. And so the Israelis, as well as the Europeans, have been citing the potential military uh, utility of these launches and getting it kind of saved and uh, put in this UN registrar. But the problem is the UN actually hasn't been able to prove them to be violations of the deal, even though from the vast majority of the international community's opinion, those things are not just violations of the deal, but they're signs of the regime inching towards a longer-range strike and capability. And,
1: very, very quickly, are you able to estimate how long it would take Iran to have a missile that could carry a nuclear warhead to the U.S.?
2: Uh, it, it really depends. There's at least right now two known Uh, medium-range ballistic missiles that we know obviously can travel to the U.S., uh, but that do fit a known bomb design. So, you know, the rest, trying to scale that up to an intercontinental one would be speculation because we don't know enough about the foreign supply chain. But what the regime is doing is that it's inching along, and these kind of tests, whether failed or successful, will help them inch along.
1: All right, Behnam, thanks so much for being on the program
2: pleasure. Thank you.
1: Straight ahead on Government Matters. If you got your vaccine in a pharmacy, it's because of the work my next guest did at the CDC. We'll talk about how she did it. Stay with us. So far, over 750 million doses of the COVID-19 vaccine have been distributed across the country, according to the CDC. That's just two years after a COVID-19 task force was created to plan its rollout. Dr. Anita Patel designed and oversaw the distribution plan at the CDC. She's also a finalist for a Service to America Award. Anita, welcome to the program. Great, thanks so much for having me. So when you were charged with leading this effort, a vaccine wasn't even available yet. How did you start planning the rollout for it? So
4: this was a pretty complicated mission that was very large in scale. The very first thing we needed to do is make sure that we had the right people at the table. This was a mission where we had to ensure that we had the right level of expertise. People that understood that multiple things had to go right in order to successfully be able to deliver
1: vaccines and be able to get shots into arms. And this was the biggest vaccination distribution ever for the federal government. I wonder what challenges you faced um, because of the scale of that distribution and how you address them.
4: Absolutely. So this was, as you said, the largest vaccine campaign in US history for both adults and now pediatric vaccines. We needed to make sure that we had an entire system in place. So this meant that we had the right type of product that that product was delivered in the right place at the right time with the right guidance for use and that we did everything in our power to ensure that we were removing all barriers to access. So whether that meant tra- transportation, the costs associated with the vaccine and ensuring that everyone who needed and wanted to get vaccinated had actual access. The biggest component of this response was definitely the private public partnerships that we had in place, our partnerships with, of course, our state and local health health departments, as well as a whole new initiative to ensure that we had private sector expertise to help augment what we knew was going to be a massive response. So this included everything from our data partners to our distribution and our logistics partnerships, and of course our large scale pharmacy partnerships, which ended up being the largest arm within the vaccine mission.
1: I wanted to ask you a little bit more about that, because as you said, this was really the first of its kind. Uh, public-private partnership, um, not just with uh, the national pharmacies but also with local pharmacies to get the vaccine distributed. What Tell us a little bit more about how that worked.
4: Absolutely. So the Federal Retail Pharmacy Program was designed to be able to ensure that we provided access as close to the communities who wanted to be vaccinated as possible. Our healthcare infrastructure isn't necessarily built in a way that ensures total access and easy access to individuals however pharmacies are positioned in a way that they're they're about a five mile radius from 90 90 of the population so the goal of the program was not only to include the large pharmacy partners the ones that we all know uh, and hear about all the time but also the some of the smaller partners we've got places in rural America in the center of the country where if we don't have these partnerships in place, access couldn't be there. So it was critical for us to not only have the large pharmacy chains, but also what we called the network partners, where we brought in independent pharmacies and smaller community pharmacies to ensure that we had reach within the communities all across the country.
1: And the CTC collected data from the local agencies and pharmacies on the vaccine effort. What was that data that you collected and how did it support the effort?
4: absolutely so data for action was absolutely a critical component for this response we needed to ensure two things that we had first the line of sight for all the product what that means is we needed to know where all the product was at all times so we had all of the data coming in from when the product left the warehouses when it got to our distributors when it got to our state and local partners as well as our pharmacy partners and what was happening at the site in terms of the amount of inventory that was available. So that is the stuff that we needed to make sure that we understood where it was at all times to ensure that we had good stewardship and good use of the federal assets. that was so critical in life saving. On the back end, we also needed to know who it was that got vaccinated. It ensured that we understood how the country was moving along with the vaccination campaign, who was being protected, and most importantly, where our risks were and where additional efforts were needed for outreach to ensure that people knew that vaccines were available and most importantly that they were safe and effective. That data included demographic information for individuals to understand age, race, ethnicity, which was a critical component of this response given that COVID has disproportionately impacted select population groups. We also wanted to know the zip codes. This allowed us to understand the vulnerabilities within the communities and again shift our operations, our guidance, to ensure that we were reaching and communicating directly with individuals who needed to get vaccinated or who wanted vaccine.
1: So what would you say was the greatest challenge your team faced? Our greatest challenge was also our greatest
4: success. It was this incredibly large partnerships and the people that we had to bring in for this all of government effort. As I mentioned, this was a huge private public partnership. But it was also ensuring that we didn't look at the problem the same way, which meant that we had to have new lenses at the table. This allowed us to look at the problem differently, not be beholden to old ways of doing things and really be creative in how to ensure that we were taking on this huge mission to ensure that vaccines were made available to those in the United States that wanted to be vaccinated.
1: All right, well, Anita, it's a pleasure to talk to you and thank you so much for your work on uh, on behalf of that vaccine rollout.
4: Great. Thank you so much for having me.
1: If you miss an episode of Government Matters, it's on our website at govmatters.tv. And tell us what you thought about today's program. Send us your comments on LinkedIn. You can follow us at Government Matters Media.
2: That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at eight and ten
1: thirty on WJLA twenty four seven News, and Sunday mornings at ten thirty on Seven News to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the federal government. Thanks for watching. I'm Mimi
2: Gerges. Stay
0: tuned for an interview with our podcast sponsor, Hughes Network Systems.
1: I'm here with Tony Bardo, Assistant Vice President for Government Solutions at Hughes. Tony, welcome. Can you start by just telling me what Hughes does for the federal government?
0: What we do is provide connections. We connect the dots, meaning we use a number of various technologies to connect federal agencies, their locations, their people, in ways that are not traditional, uh, meaning that In the absence of terrestrial ground uh, infrastructure that was working, satellite was really critical.
1: All right. Well, Tony, thank you so much. Nice chatting with you. Thank
0: you, Mimi. Nice chatting with you. Thanks for listening. Our Daily Show is produced by Katherine Roloff. Our Managing Director is Jerry Foley. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our Web Editor is Beatrix Haddon. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more. Government Matters is recorded at
2: WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.